Actually, I'm going to preach chapter 22. That's the real sermon. But some of you will be alarmed with me if I skip over Revelation chapter 20. So go back to Revelation chapter 20 and let's do the millennium. Let's talk about the thousand years. Let's start there uh, and then we'll finish up tonight. Uh, This is the last in a message series entitled The End of Everything, the book of Revelation. We've been doing this now for a number of weeks. And uh, I I think it's been a really good time for us, a good study. It's been good for me. I was scared to start out, to be honest, because of the um, kind of fevered pitch with which some people come into the book of Revelation. I was checking out at Walmart one day, uh, as, as we do, and uh, anyway, there's one lady, and I, I, I tend to go to her all the time. I, I don't know why, uh, especially after this day, but I, I went to her this day, and uh, I was really frustrated, and nothing against Walmart, if you love Walmart. I love Walmart, um, but I got really frustrated for a while because it seemed like every week the shelves were empty. I mean, like the shelves are just empty. I would go to the grocery and the things I want to buy just aren't there. I mean, the shelves were empty and I got aggravated about it. So I was going through the line to checking out my groceries and the ladies just checking me out. And I said, uh, I said, why are all the shelves empty? I mean, I'm just asking, why are the shelves empty? She said, it's in the book of Revelation, read it. <laughs> I said, uh, Empty shelves in Walmart, that's in Revelation. She said, it's all in Revelation if you'll just read it. You know, she's just checking out my groceries. And so I don't even know at this point if I want her to know I'm a pastor. You know how sometimes it's better what people don't know? So I said, well, and I didn't tell her I'm your pastor. I just said, you know, I've read Revelation. I must have missed the Walmart part. I I thought I could, you know, get her to laugh a little. She wasn't laughing. She wasn't laughing. She said, you need to read it again. It's all in there. The empty shelves, the lack of food, this barcode scanner, boop, boop, the, the barcode scanner in Revelation. I said, you know, ma'am, I, I've read Revelation really close. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I don't know how to get out of this conversation. But she said, oh, it's in there. The empty shelves, the lack of food, it's all in there. And about that time, the lady behind me said, I blame Obama. <laughs> So now I'm shopping at Myers, everyone. I go to Myers um, most days. Um, honestly, that's the frustration that a lot of people have with the book of Revelation. But because of the way so many people who seem to know a lot about it see things in it that, that the average person's never going to see. You're never going to find barcode scanners in Revelation. I'm just, I've read it closely. You understand? You're just not going to find empty shelves at Walmart. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, with that third horseman of the apocalypse, maybe that's Walmart. But, but you got to stretch it a, lo- a long, long way. And I think that's why so often we become discouraged in reading Revelation. Because you hear preachers who could find Walmart and barcode scanners and Henry Kissinger and Obama and everybody else. And you're just thinking, I never would have seen that. Apparently, I can't read Revelation. But maybe it turns out reading Revelation isn't that difficult if you just let the the Word speak to you. You let the Bible interpret the Bible and and stop bringing so much other stuff in. And honestly, that's just what I've tried to do in preaching through it. Just let the text speak. But, But now sometimes the text is difficult. And this passage here, the thousand years, the millennium as we call it, it is a really difficult passage. Now, let's talk about what the passage seems to mean. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to be really honest. We're just going to try to read this together and figure out what it says together. Revelation 20, verse 1. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped a beast or a statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years." This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog. In every corner of the earth, he'll gather them together for a battle, a mighty army, as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. What? My goodness, now that gets complicated. You can understand why in my original preaching plan, I was skipping all that. Right? I, mean, I was skipping that part. That's, that's hard. The, the, the thousand years, it's, it's, it's often called the millennium. millennium. Millennium just means a thousand years. Now, this is all we know. I remind you, this is it. That passage I just read is the only real reference to the thousand years in, in all of Scripture. So, so anybody who knows a whole lot about it, uh, they must be either, either smarter than the whole world, or honestly, they're not being faithful to just what the text reveals. The only thing we can know is what the Bible reveals to us, and this is pretty much it. And this particular text can be a, a, a little bit hard to understand. I guess there's several options for us. Some people would say that we're talking about a literal thousand years, a 1,000-year reign. And this is sort of a time when everything goes on pause. And if you read very literally, it's either just the martyrs or maybe all of the Christians of the church are all raised, and they sort of reign on earth. They sit on thrones, and there with Christ, they reign for a thousand years. During this time, the devil is bound, and he is in the bottomless pit. And when that thousand years is over, the devil is unleashed again. And then one last time, he gives it his worst, and then ultimately he is defeated and destroyed, and the end of everything has come. That's that's the way a lot of people have understood it, a a, a literal thousand-year reign on earth while the devil is bound. And then some people wonder whether or not, um, whether it's it's a literal thousand years, maybe this is a a symbolic passage that's talking about something else. And and again, there are so many different ways to read it, but but let's let's just try to understand. Let's, Let's jump right in. First off, let me say this. In reading the book of Revelation... Most of the time, numbers are symbolic. So I am inclined to think that the thousand years is not literal. 
Because in most every other passage we've read, the numbers weren't necessarily literal. They, they were symbolic numbers. And 1,000 could be a, a symbolic number. We could be talking about something else. So, so what are we talking about? Let's read again real carefully. Uh, the angel threw the dragon, I'm in verse 3, into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or statue nor accepted his mark. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Okay, nowhere else in Scripture do we have that language of first resurrection. So that's kind of unique here. So, so what are we talking about? The, the first resurrection. Now, as I've been saying all along, most of the time when I've heard this passage preached and taught, it's been from that angle of a literal thousand-year reign with Christ on earth. Um, but I'm telling you, I, I want to come back to just the Scripture. And if the Scripture doesn't support what I've always been taught, I'm obligated to go with Scripture. And what I see in my reading is it just simply, there's nothing anywhere here that talks about reigning on earth. Now, all through Revelation, when John has had these visions of the martyrs, the souls under the altar, they were in heaven. They weren't on earth. You understand? In every other instance, the thrones, the martyrs, they were actually reigning in heaven. So I don't know how you can make this thousand years some sort of reign on earth. The text doesn't seem to support that, and so that's why I offer that. I just don't see that. It sounds more like they're reigning with Christ in heaven. And it's called the first resurrection, and maybe that's a clue too. Maybe that's an important clue. The first resurrection. Are there two resurrections? More than one? Apparently, John wants you to understand that, that, that there is a, a, a staging. There may be two stages to resurrection. Is there anything like that in Scripture? Because like I say, we want Scripture to interpret Scripture. And if what John is describing is what we would call the first resurrection, then what exactly is that? Go back with me to where we were this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm wearing this passage out. First Thessalonians chapter 4. It's the rapture passage we read this morning. But let's look at it. Because there's some interesting things here. First Thessalonians chapter 4, let's start with verse 15. Actually, let's start with verse 13. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died. So that you will not grieve like people do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Okay, now that's really interesting. So the first thing that Paul tells us here is that when Jesus returns, he'll be bringing with him, be bringing with him those who have died in Christ. Is that, is that clear? You understand that? Paul says to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So I know that when I die, I'm going to be present with the Lord. And so the, the picture here is that at that moment of the rapture, when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring with him all of those who have died. They're with him. We understand that. But then let's keep reading because this is where your mind gets blown. We tell you this directly from the Lord. 
We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the Christians who have died will first rise from their graves. What? I thought they were coming with Jesus. Because isn't that what it said? He's going to bring with him those who have died. But now, one of the first things that's going to happen is that graves will open and they're going to rise. Okay, what, what, where, when, how? You see that? The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And first to Christians who have died, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then together with them, we who are still alive, remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be with the Lord for, for, forever. Okay, remember, remember what happens when one of us dies. It's it's the New Testament teaching. There's kind of two stages to resurrection. You could talk about the first resurrection. And what would that be? That's when I die and my spirit, my soul, we might say, goes to be with the Lord. Now, if you read... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know everything that Paul says about the resurrection body. We're not going to be spirits without bodies. We were never intended to be spirits without bodies. But in this intermediate phase, after we die, we go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is still to be present with the Lord. But in that intermediate phase, we're not necessarily going to have our bodies. It's an intermediate phase where we are kept in Christ, but kept for this moment when in that final trumpet call, the the dead in Christ rise, understand that the the bodies come and and we get our resurrection body. So it's kind of like first resurrection, second resurrection. Understand, the first resurrection is just our, our souls, our spirits being with Christ after we die. But then that second resurrection is when we're reunited with our bodies. Does that make sense? I'm talking really fast, and I apologize. This is deep stuff, but, but it's, it's the way Paul mostly describes the resurrection. Go back, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to take my word for it. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks so much about the resurrection of, of Christ and the resurrection of us. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's start in 51. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled that says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where Where is your sting? So there's kind of two stages to resurrection if if you follow all of that. So now back to Revelation, back to what John is describing here. If what he's describing in these thousand years is is the first resurrection, then then the sense that I make out of this is that this thousand years is meant to, to be John's way of describing for us that reign with Christ that believers will have in that period of time between their death and that final coming of Jesus. And during that time, we can say Satan is bound. Okay, now you think you've got me, right? Because last you looked, Satan is not bound. He is living at your house. I mean, Satan is bound. That, that's news to me. I mean, I mean, gosh, did you even watch the news last week? It's horrible. 
Can we even say that Satan is bound now during this time? Well, actually, you almost have to. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Again, these are Jesus's, Jesus's words. Matthew chapter 12. We talked about this a bit last year in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus is talking about his own ministry. And this is what he said. Verse, chapter 12, verse 25. Any kingdom divided against itself is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. If Satan is casting out Satan, he's divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. Uh, again, remember the Pharisees have accused Jesus of being uh, somehow p- powered by Satan. So he says, if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they'll condemn me for what you've said. But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who can bind the strong man and plunder his house. So if you read the Gospels closely, you understand that that Jesus binds the strong man. There is a binding of Satan that takes place in Jesus' ministry, and that continues to hold. Again, if we hold all this together with what John sees in Revelation chapter 20, this this thousand years, the implication is that that he's describing this reign with Christ in, in heaven of all those who have died. And that takes place until the end. And at the very end time, the, Satan is released again to do his worst. And, and, and John talks about that, the, the, the dreadfulness of those last days when the dragon is unleashed to, to do his worst. But he will ultimately be defeated. And in verses 7 through 10 there, uh, where, where John describes that final defeat of Satan, if you notice, it's, it's, it's similar to what we read this morning, that, that ending of the so-called battle of, of Armageddon, when ultimately, ultimately uh, all of the enemies of God are, are banished in hell forever. So uh, again, the, the thousand-year reign seems to be... A, a, a symbol, a way of talking about our, our reign with Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. I think Paul is describing a, a similar reality here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, when he says, Christ raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. It's that picture of, of those of us who belong to Christ being seated in the heavenly realms to reign with him. I think this is what John is d- describing. I'm just trying to read the, close, the text very closely and let Scripture interpret Scripture. And, and that's where I, I, I come out. If I'm wrong about it, if there's like a thousand years where we're reigning, I'll be all about that. I'm good. I will participate. Uh, but, but I'm not sure that's what the Scripture describes. Now, let's go to heaven and, and let's wrap this up. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and the servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. And his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there for 
No need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw all these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in this book. Worship only God. Then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. Let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy. Look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I love it. What is there at the end? What, what is heaven? First off, verse 1, it's, there's a river there, water of life, crystal clear. But it's about the throne. You understand? It's the throne. It's the throne of God. What does the throne of God symbolize? I'm not saying it's not a real throne. I'm just saying, what does it say when you say, There's a throne, and God is sitting on it. What does that mean? At the end of everything, a throne, and God is sitting on it. Yeah, he is the seat of all power. Uh, It it is his. It always was his. Uh, There is a throne, and he is sitting on it. Understand, history is a story. It's God's story. It's his story, we might say. It is the story of of God who created the world and and loved the world. He made the man and the woman for fellowship with him. Remember how they walked with him in in the cool of the day in, in the garden, but sin ruptured that relationship. And from that point on, the man and woman had to be banished from that garden. That They had to be separated because their sin separated them from the God who loved them so. They could no longer walk with him. They could no longer see his face. You understand that? An angel was put there to guard access to the garden. And read the scriptures. The rest of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is his story. It's his story of trying to bring us back to him. And at the end of the story, everything ends with him once more. Do you understand? He will be their God and they will be his people. There will be no more tears, no more curse on anything. Do do, do you understand that? It it all ends at his throne and it's absolutely beautiful. In, In the end, God triumphs. He wins. He gets what he always wanted. What is it that he always wanted though? What is it that he always wanted? Let's go back. 22, verse 2, it flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a what? A tree of life. Again, it's a vision of heaven. It's a picture of heaven. And as it turns out, on each side of the river, there's a tree of life. So there are actually multiple trees of life, it sounds like. And these trees of life bear all kinds of fruit. What kinds of fruit? Something different every month. 
In other words, you never go to the tree of life and not find something there to eat. There's always fruit on the tree of life. And the idea there is access. Total access to the tree of life. You can always get to it because there are multiple trees of life and you'll always find sustenance there. Always something to eat from the tree of life. Why is that amazing? Remember, go back to Genesis with me. Genesis chapter 3. Turn some pages, people. Come on. Genesis chapter 3. This is good. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. This is the fall. God speaks. Genesis 3, 22. The Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they'll live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to what? to the tree of life. The reason the man and woman had to leave the garden is because they could not have access to the tree of life. Now, they had already eaten from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and that was their sin. But now there's danger. They must not eat from the tree of life. Why is that a danger? Why must they not be allowed to eat from that tree now? Because that means they will live forever in their sin. No hope for salvation. They will live eternally in separation from the God who made them. So for that reason, the man and woman, the human beings could never be allowed back to the tree of life because they must not be allowed to live forever in separation from the God who loves them. You understand? So this whole story, Genesis to Revelation, the whole story is trying to bring us back into relationship with God, bring us back before His face so that we can live forever with Him. So heaven becomes a place where we have access once more to the tree of life. You understand? It's what we were created for, to live forever with Him before Him. Back up, chapter 21, verse 1. Just don't miss this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old earth and heaven had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It's just one of these things that that I, I don't want you to miss because a lot of people are confused about this. Where is heaven? Where will we spend eternity? Off in the clouds somewhere? What does the scripture say? Yeah, on on, on the new earth, a renewed earth. We will spend eternity on a new earth. So when you try to picture heaven, it's, it's going to be a new earth. It's going to be something like this earth, only there's no curse on anything. It will be creation exactly as God intended it. So, so, Spread the word about that. Help people understand that, that heaven is not some faraway place that, that, that you've never been or, or can't see or imagine. It's the new earth, the, the new heaven and the new earth. And understand God's dwelling comes down. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, it comes down. God comes down to where we are and he makes his dwelling with us. So our eternal dwelling place is with God. He is what makes it heaven but we'll be spending eternity on the new earth. Does that make it sound a little more appealing? Because honestly, sometimes when I've heard people talk about heaven, they manage to make it seem like a place I I wouldn't want to go. 
You ever seen the pictures of just like people walking around like in clouds? As a kid, did that not ever freak you out? Because I would worry, seriously, as a kid, I would, I would think about walking around on clouds and I, w- I would be afraid of what? Why don't we fall through? You understand? And then plus, it was always so empty. Just, you know, looking out forever in, in clouds and then thinking about playing harps and, you know, what? It sounds about as appealing as chewing on a Kleenex. And this is not the biblical picture of heaven at all. We need to spread the word. As, as God, as Scripture describes heaven, it, it is a glorious place. So often we make it sound like a place that would be so much less appealing than even life on earth. It's, it's everything you love about life on earth, only completely renewed and restored to, to, to be in alignment with God's will, God's perfect purposes, God's plan for us. You understand? It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. My preacher used to say, uh, if you all can't sit here and, and, and stay awake for one hour church service, how are you going to make it in heaven for eternity? And I would think, that is a good question right there. That is a pretty good question. <laughs> because what was his implication? Heaven's going to be like what? A church service that never ends. And it starts sounding like the other place all of a sudden, doesn't it? I mean, how in the world is that heaven? Now, let me say this. A a recent survey by the by the Barna Group. uh, He's a Christian sociologist who who does a lot of research uh, in American society. Barna questioned American churchgoers like you and me, and in that survey, he asked him a simple question. Have you ever felt the presence of God in worship? Seven out of 10 people said no, never. Okay. So the reason why worship for you sounds like something you can't imagine doing for very long You've never really felt or known the presence of God. And in that sense, I don't blame you. I don't know what worship would be about if it's not about enjoying the presence of God. So when I think of it in those terms, I begin to understand something of what my pastor was saying. If if God's presence doesn't draw you in, if if the idea of, of being with him and blessed by him and, and knowing him and praising him, if that's not appealing to you, then probably heaven's not going to be for you anyway. Understand? It's about God. Jesus will be what makes it heaven for me. If you don't know him or, or love him, then I understand why you would not really relate to the promise of heaven. There would be nothing appealing in it because Jesus is what makes it heaven. One of the blessings of being a pastor in a church like Woodburn over time is honestly being present at the death of the saints. I, I get to be there when you go. So be good to me. It's amazing to uh, look in Lloyd Gregory's face right before he dies and hear Lloyd say, man, I'm going to see Jesus. That's what Lloyd said, man, I'm going to see Jesus. Lloyd said, you know, for me, 
Death's going to be like this. Did this thing with his, with his finger. He, I said, Lloyd, I don't understand. Help me understand. What are you telling me? He said, for me, death is going to be like this. And he was weak, and, and, and he did this. I said, Lloyd, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why are you touching your fingers? He said, for me, death will be like this. And then this time he did it, he went. <laughs> yeah. Man, I'm going to see Jesus. Evelyn Balance, right before she died, she said, I see trees loaded with fruit. And then she said, and you're all coming with me. Kind of a minute, I'm also thinking, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't planning on going today, Evelyn. Uh, <laughs> how beautiful. It's how beautiful. But understand, these are, these are people who learn to love Jesus in this life. They learn to know him in this life. And, and in the end, they were willing to leave everything in this world for the simple pleasure of seeing his face. And this is what is heaven. Come back, read it with me. Verse 3, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and the servants will worship him. Verse 4, and they will see his face. They will see his face. I mean, you've read the Bible, right? All through the Bible, it says you cannot see the face of God and live. You cannot see the face of God and live. No one sees the face of God and lives. Moses was allowed to see God's hind parts as he passed by, but, but then only the hind parts. And then I don't know if he really got to see anything at all. I mean, nobody could see the face of God and live. But this is the promise of heaven. Do you understand? They will see his face. His name will be written on their foreheads. There will be no night there. No need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them. And they will reign forever and ever. It's a letter written to uh, Christians, to seven churches. Who were suffering for their faith. They lived every day in the shadow of a throne, but it was the throne of Caesar. It wasn't the throne of, of God, and they suffered under the brutal hand of Caesar. In years past, they'd already seen Christians who were fed to animals and burned alive, and the persecution is starting up again, and, and they just wonder, what does this mean? Is, is it worth it? How is it worth it? And sometimes in this life, you're going to wonder, how is it worth it? And the message of Revelation is it will be worth it all. In the end of all things, there is a throne. And the lover and maker of your soul is sitting on it. And you will see his face and you will reign with him forever and ever. This is the message of the book of Revelation. Scripture says, don't conceal it. Don't neglect it. Make sure you preach this. Make sure you read this. And God help me, I plan to do a better job in the next 18 years. We've got to come back to this book with more regularity. We need to remember that there is a throne and God is the one who sits on it. 
We need to remind each other that, that though life is hard and may get much, much harder for us, it's still worth it all. To, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to walk in the light of his face, it will be worth it all. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, the curtain is pulled back on something that ordinarily we can't see. From where we stand, we can't see the end of everything. Lord, all we know is the middle, and the middle sometimes is very, very difficult. I was there when Evelyn saw the end of it. I was there when Lloyd began to anticipate seeing you, Jesus. I remember walking in the room after Abby Cummings died and seeing the smile on her face. Lord, others have seen it from a distance. And Lord, we thank you so much for the promise of heaven and and the hope of Christ and the knowledge that there is a throne at the end of all things and you, O Lord, are sitting on it. That means that you truly are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And if you are ruling at the beginning and ruling at the end, Lord, then we know that everything that happens in the middle must in some way happen for your glory. So Lord Jesus, may we be encouraged May we never lose faith, never lose hope. May we never lose sight of the fact, Lord, that everything in our lives begins and ends with you. So, Lord, help us to trust you in the meantime, in the tribulation and trials and sorrow of this life, Lord. May we continue to walk toward the light of your face with the hope of the gospel and the love of Jesus, which makes our lives worth living. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. I love you all. Have a great week.